I'd like to sincerely thank everyone who helped us move yesterday. A few people wanted to be there and have expressed that they are sorry they couldn't be there. It's okay. People who were there just love us more, but no. Uh, we, we really appreciate it. We had plenty of help. We had plenty of people. Uh, and again, we really, really appreciate that. Made something that would have taken all afternoon uh, get taken care of in, in probably less than an hour. So we are sincerely, sincerely appreciative of that. Also, I appreciate everything that, uh, that Doug Bauer and, and Pam Risto have done this past month to coordinate uh, just us staying with different people from the church and uh, having meals with different people. So sincerely appreciate all of that effort just to, to coordinate all that. Uh, I assume it's probably kind of a tough sell to be like, hey, can some people who you don't know at all stay with you? Uh, but <laughs> appreciate that. Forgot to thank, I don't think they're here this morning, Mike and Eileen, we stayed with them last week. And uh, as with everyone else we stayed with, definitely appreciate their hospitality. And uh, so just yeah, very, very grateful to be here. Moved in yesterday, excited to be here, uh, excited to be at the house. And um, yeah, just really, really feeling blessed. Um, as we're adjusting to life in Sista Park, one of the goals I have is to, to definitely try to, to meet with every person, every family from the church. Um, and so it's going to be much, much easier to be active doing that, having meals or coffee or uh, whatever, um, watching a game. And so excited to, to be here for that and uh, just to, to be serving. With that said, would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for this day. Lord, I pray for this church, for the fellowship that we have here. Lord, for the, the love that we have here, for the community that we have here. And just let it continue every day, every week to be strengthened, that we continue to grow as your followers and disciples. Lord, that we be your true church and loving you and serving you and serving one another and being light in the community. Lord, I pray for Rick Ryder, the surgery that he has coming up, and I just I pray that that go well, and that you, you bless the doctors and their procedure, and uh, that for a quick recovery. Uh, Lord, I continue to pray for Mason Steiner and um, for his recovery, and I can pray that that be something where he improves and improves rapidly. Lord, I thank you for Judy, that she's back home now, and also want to continue to pray for her recovery from surgery and um, that she just continued to get, to get stronger. Uh, pray for Robin Lober and her uh, hip replacement and as well just for, for recovery in that. Lord, in the face of all these surgeries and procedures that we just be mindful that you are the divine healer and uh, just to, to walk with you and trust in you in all these things. Lord, I pray for the message today that you uh, bless these words, that they be edifying to us and challenging and encouraging, and that we continue to grow in the knowledge of your word, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. There's an interesting uh, poem that Mark read, and one of the things that I thought was interesting about it is... It just makes you think sometimes about what was going on maybe behind the scenes in Jesus' life. And obviously, it's a, it's a poem, and I'm sure the lady who wrote it would be the first to say that it's not meant to be uh, an actual depiction of, of all the events, um, but kind of 
What else is going on? What are people thinking about when Jesus is ministering and doing his work? We're continuing in the Gospel of John this morning. And uh, in this passage that we're in, we see Jesus perform his first miracle. And one of the things I'll talk about as we get into the passage, but just to make a, a brief comment now... I believe it's the first miracle Jesus ever does. Now, I don't know that for a fact, but it's interesting as I think about that poem and I think about Jesus' early life, and it it makes me wonder, what was Jesus' early life like? His birth is talked about in two of the Gospels, Matthew and Luke. But aside from that, there's only two other stories about his early life, both found in Luke chapter 2. He's taken to the temple as a baby. And there's also a story in Luke chapter 2 about his parents leaving him behind, thinking that he's with them um, when they're uh, they're leaving the temple. Other than that, we don't have anything else in the Bible about his early life. Um, But like I said, I think that the, the miracle that he does in this passage is the first time he ever does anything miraculous. If you watch the X-Men movies, you have these, these kids who, who grow up and they have these powers that they can't control. In, in the original X-Men movie, the character Rogue, she has this ability to sort of take the energy out of a person. And she goes to kiss somebody and puts them in the hospital just because she can't harness her own power. And I think it's important to realize that Jesus is not a superhero. He's not an X-Men character. He's God incarnate. And so I don't believe that he was just doing miracles growing up just because they're not magic tricks. They're things that display his, his power and glory and are done for specific purposes within the context of his ministry. Uh, so it's just a, a thought that I had considering that poem. Passage this morning, John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. I'm sorry, 1 through 12. I put 1 to 11 in the bulletin. We're actually going to read to the end of that section. So John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone jars, six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory... And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went on to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. And they stayed there for a few days. 
this section that we're in this morning in the Gospel of John, I see is somewhat of a crossroads. Chapter 1, verses 1 to 18 is kind of like the introductory prologue, but I actually consider through the end of this section to, to truly be the beginning section of John's Gospel. But it's also the beginning of the depiction and John recounting the ministry of Jesus. So it's kind of a convergence of those two uh, sections within this gospel. And as I mentioned today, we see the first of the miraculous signs that Jesus performs when he turns water into wine. Of all the miracles that we see Jesus do in the gospels, at first glance, this might be the most perplexing. The story is a little bit weird. The dialogue is controversial. But with those potential areas of confusion with this miracle, there's one thing that is totally clear in this story. And that's going to be the point of our passage this morning, that Jesus shows his glory. And in this passage, we'll see a conflict, a solution, and its significance. First scene, we see a conflict, going back to verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. So Jesus says, is at a wedding feast in Cana, which is a town in Galilee, and the feast runs out of wine. This would have been a serious faux pas and a huge embarrassment. Now, in this day and time and period, the groom was responsible for the financial burden of the wedding. In the first century in this region, weddings could last over a week. Many in the town would have been invited. There were huge parties. So Mary approaches Jesus saying, they have no wine. She seems to feel a sense of burden to help out. It's debated what exactly Mary was expecting Jesus to do. At the end of the passage, John tells us in verse 11, again, that this is his first miracle at Cana in Galilee. But I believe that the evidence from all the Gospels is that it's his first miracle anywhere. And so, based on that view, it seems unlikely that Mary here expects Jesus to do a miracle. Jesus is her faithful son. She's going to him for help in a time of need. Jesus gives a seemingly abrupt response in verse 4. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. I'm reading from the ESV. Some translations like the NIV soften the language a little bit and say, Dear woman. But literally what Jesus says is, Woman. Now, if my mom had come to me and asked me to do something and I said, Woman, I would have gotten backhanded. But it's important to keep in mind that it's, it's a different culture than our culture. And this should not be taken as a sign of disrespect. Towards the end of, the, of this gospel, when Jesus is on the cross, he entrusts the care of Mary to the apostle John. And he uses the same word, John 19, 26. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. So while it may seem odd that Jesus uses this language, he is not being disrespectful to Mary. Back in our passage, Jesus asks, 
What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Several times throughout John's gospel, it refers to Jesus' hour, and that refers to the hour of his death. To give just one example, John 17.1, Jesus praying shortly before his arrest says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Back in our passage, chapter 2 and verse 5. After Jesus gives his response to Mary, Mary is undeterred. There's no offense in what he's said. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. As I said a moment ago, we don't know exactly what she expected. We all face situations where we have to trust in Jesus and where we don't know how things are going to work out, but where we have to believe in him and trust in him nevertheless. We have situations with our health where we don't know how things will work out, but where we have to trust in Jesus. We have situations in our own hearts, struggles, brokenness, despair, depression that we deal with, where we have to trust in Jesus, even when we might be tempted to think that nothing will change. We have situations with difficult relationships, where there's so much brokenness and damage, where hope seems lost but where we have to trust in Jesus and depend on Jesus and lean on Jesus. Where he says to Mary, my hour has not yet come. It's the beginning of his ministry, yet everything that Jesus does is building up to his crucifixion because that's the purpose of his ministry. His hour, his death for a sinful humanity. And part of that purpose for his ministry seems to be captured in his response to Mary. Because in his response, by saying, what does it have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Jesus is showing that he operates based on the will of God, not of Mary. He is not here at the whims of man or of the world. He is here for the divine mission. Second scene, we see a resolution. Text tells us, verse 6, Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. So they find six stone water jars, not just any jars, but these were jars that were used for Jewish purification. At this wedding feast, water would be poured onto the hands of of the people attending the wedding to wash their hands. And there were six jars, 20 to 30 gallons, 180 gallons. Or by modern standards, over 900 bottles of wine. Or 150 boxes of franzia. <laughs> and Jesus instructs his servants, fill the jars with water, and they fill them up to the brim. Verse 8, and he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. The story doesn't explain exactly the process by which Jesus turned water into wine. We just see the result. Verse 9. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, so they saw. They saw what Jesus did. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. 
what the master of the feast is saying is that normally you would drink your best stuff at the beginning, and then after that, then you go to the cheap stuff, not the other way around. Hundreds of gallons of water, and Jesus has turned it into premium wine. And we have something of theological significance in this. Jesus is showing a transition from old to new. He's using the water for Jewish purification rituals to do this mighty work. It's a symbol of the old covenant and the new covenant that Jesus is bringing in. That's not saying that Jesus replaced the old covenant in this miracle. That's not saying that people who witnessed what Jesus had done fully grasped that significance at the time. But this story isn't just about turning water into wine. Jesus does this miraculous sign to point to something greater. He points to what he is going to usher in in the world. A new covenant, a new life, a new heart, the newness that he brings. We're continuing this larger theme in John's gospel of Jesus as the Lord of a new creation. For the last couple weeks, I've talked about how from the time John the Baptist is introduced, the Apostle John is moving time forward. John chapter 1, verses 29, 35, and 43, he keeps saying the next day. He's, he's moving this week forward. Building up to the culmination of this week, the wedding feast, the beginning of Jesus' ministry, passage begins on the third day, bringing the week to a close. And as we come to the end of this seven-day week, we see that Jesus gives this sign, which will point to the work that he will do to replace the old covenant with the new covenant, of replacing the old wine with the new wine. Something else that's important about this passage, I mentioned at the beginning that running out of wine would have been a huge social embarrassment. But let's keep in mind, Jesus intervenes here. And while it would have been embarrassing, it's not like a life and death situation. It's not the end of the world if they had run out of wine. Jesus is the Lord of all things. He's the Lord of the big things and the small things and of everything in between. We need to trust in him in all situations and seasons of life, big and small. And to know that there is no situation that is too inconsequential for us to bring to Jesus. It's not like we're nagging him or if we ask him for something that's comparatively minor or pray to him for something that maybe isn't as significant as another thing in our life. It's not like we'll wear him out on that and then for the big stuff we can't go to him because we've already asked. Jesus is full of grace. Some of us, it can be really easy to turn to Jesus for the big things, to pray for people, to pray for health, to pray before a significant event in life. But just to keep in mind that no matter what's going on, we can take it to Jesus. It's common after a football game when the microphone gets in front of a football player and oftentimes the first thing they'll do is they'll thank God. And I've heard people mock that attitude. Does God really care if you win a football game? God isn't a part-time God. He's a full-time God. 
And in all things, we should be giving him glory. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18 says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. It doesn't say to rejoice only when things are good, to pray only when things are significant, to give thanks only in the victories, but to have a life that revolves around God. To live a life that is devoted to Christ and that is lived with a focus on Jesus and to live to the glory of God because Jesus is the Lord of all things. Third point, passage ends by getting at the significance of this work that Christ has done. To this point in the passage, John has told us the what, but not the why. But he ends with the why. This, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana and Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Jesus manifested his glory. He displayed his glory. In our passage, John uses the word sign instead of miracle. A sign is miraculous, but it's also pointing to something greater. It's pointing to a greater reason for why it's being done. The Gospel of John actually records fewer miracles of Jesus than the other Gospels. But for the most part, the signs that Jesus does in the Gospel of John continue to sort of ratchet up in magnitude. He starts with turning water into wine. The next couple both involve Jesus healing. The ones after that, Jesus feeds 5,000 and calms a storm, showing his dominion over nature. And then the last miracle that Jesus does, the last sign that he does before his own death and resurrection is he raises Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11. But this is his first sign. Something else that I think is important to understand. I keep talking about different things that Jesus says or does and how someone like Mary or John the Baptist, or the disciples and passages we've looked at over the last few weeks, how they probably wouldn't have understood it at the time, wouldn't have understood the magnitude at the time. I talk about the theological significance in this passage, in this event, of Jesus showing the replacement of the Old Covenant, of the Mosaic Covenant. He's pointing to that, what he's going to do. I talk about how they wouldn't have understood that at the time. I want to be clear, though, that it's not that these would have been, therefore, insignificant to these people who are witnessing what Jesus was doing. They might not have seen the full scope because they didn't have the full story, but that doesn't mean that it wasn't really meaningful still. Because the text tells us that this sign manifested the glory of Christ to his disciples. It was a game changer. And seeing Jesus do this, It led the disciples to believing in him. So there are two major things then in connection with this sign that Jesus has done. Pointing to replacing the old with the new. And it was a display of his glory. Both are important. For the disciples, it would have been far more impressive for them being there, seeing what Jesus had done, seeing the water, tasting the new wine, than for us to just read about it. 
It was an amazing thing Jesus had done. A glorious display of his power. Obviously, human language doesn't even truly convey how glorious and awe-inspiring these scenes would have had to have been. Jesus' entire ministry points us to his goodness and character, to his divinity and dominion, that he is God on earth. The glory of Christ is an idea that I think is easy to take for granted. We just attach attach the idea to him. Yeah, he's glorious. But to really sit and think about that, Glory is one of those words, it's just kind of a churchy word. Glory, glorious. The Hebrew word for glory is kavod, which conveys a sense of weight or heaviness, as well as importance. You don't just consider the glory of God and think, oh, that's nice. But it's meant to overwhelm, to cast fear into the heart of this powerful and glorious God, to realize how unworthy we are, and yet he makes us worthy. He gives us grace. And why? For his own glory. Quoting from Psalm 29, verses 3 and 4, The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. Are you living to bring glory to God, to enjoy him, to find your identity in him? Jesus revealed his glory. It's interesting to me, turning water into wine compared to other things Jesus did in his ministry almost doesn't even seem that impressive. But that just shows how glorious he is. Doing so many things throughout the Gospels that such an incredible miracle could seem almost underwhelming by the, end of his, by the end of his ministry. But it wasn't underwhelming. Because it was because of this that the disciples believed. Because of this mighty work of Christ. His signs show the glory of Christ. They show why he is worshipped. They show why he is worthy of honor. That he is to be believed in. He turned water into wine. He took water and he changed the molecules of it and made it into a different thing. His miracles authenticate his identity. And the culmination of that is his death and resurrection. And because that happened, because his other miracles and signs happened, because he shows his power over all of life, Our only acceptable response is to come to him and worship, to realize his greatness, to realize that he is the Lord, to bow down before him, to trust him and his word because of his power and glory. Jesus shows us that in creation. He shows it in his holiness. He shows it in his gospel. Jesus shows that in his ministry and in his power. And we see the mighty works that he does. John records that Jesus 
displays his glory in the first miracle that he does. It points us to, to his wonder. Yet it also points us to his hour. The hour of his death when he took the penalty of our sins. We who are not holy, who are not glorious, were made holy by the glorious Lord who took our unholiness, aiming gloriousness upon himself. Turning water into wine. At the Last Supper, on the night before his death, Jesus takes the cup of wine. And he calls it the blood of the new covenant. And the next day he was crucified and his literal blood was shed for sin. In our passage this morning, Jesus provides wine for a wedding. The wedding is significant. In Revelation 19, as the Bible winds down, it talks of another wedding feast. A greater wedding feast. The end time, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Heaven is depicted as a wedding. What a great picture of heaven that is. As a wedding is such a joyous occasion. And heaven is shown, among other images we get of heaven in the Bible, as a wedding. And at that wedding feast, Jesus is the groom. In our passage in John 2, Jesus saves the wedding. But it points to the greater feast, where our attendance is secured by Jesus, who saved humanity. And it is because of the blood of the Lamb of Jesus that he is able to sustain the wedding feast. The groom supplies the wedding. And Jesus, as the groom, has provided. And that is given to all people at the moment that you believe in him and trust in him. That his death became your death for you because of his glory. And that no matter what you've done, you can be forgiven because he is good And he is glorious. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do thank you for your goodness and gospel. Lord, I I thank you that you invite all to the wedding feast. Lord, may we accept that invitation from you. May we trust in you and believe in you. May we turn away from sin and turn to you. May we find life in you. May we walk in your ways. In Jesus' name, amen.